Well, good morning, New City. Glad to be with you here again this morning. I think all of us in our lives can look at back on times in our lives where we felt like we, we didn't fit in or we, wanted to, we were not going to fit in, and so we were trying to do things to make us not seem like outsiders, if you will. I remember particularly when I graduated from college, and you can think back to your graduation, whether it's high school or if you graduated from college as well, you know you have the graduation outfit where you have the robe and the hat thing and the tassel, and then some people get special like sashes or medals or cords that they get to wear around their neck that represent maybe certain GPAs that they achieved or certain special events that they did while doing their studies. And so when we were getting ready to graduate, we got all of our cap and gown and all that sort of thing. And I noticed when I graduated college, I noticed many of my friends were getting like these medals and these sashes and these cords. And I didn't get any of them. Now, I assumed that some of it was due to, you know, high GPA or special things that they did. And then I realized many of them were getting them simply because that's what their major did. That if you had this particular major, you got to wear an extra special thing on your graduation gown. And I was like, well, this isn't fair because my friend, one of my roommates and I were philosophy and religion majors. And as a philosophy and religion major, you didn't get anything special. And so we were thinking... Well, if people are getting like these cords and sashes when they didn't do anything extra other than getting a degree in their major, then we're going to buy our own because we don't want to be left out. So we went to a craft store. We got these golden uh, uh, cords and hung, to hang around our neck. And here's a picture of it. Uh, me and my roommate are on the left-hand side with our golden cords. And so we wore it. We were thinking, I don't know who's in charge of like these graduation gown outfit things. Like is somebody going to call us out and say we can't wear it? In fact, the day before graduation, we had a, you know, the philosophy and religion little banquet thing for those of us in our department that were graduating. And so we wore the cords to that and we told a few people that we are wearing these cords because for us, uh, we spent the year doing, man, I forgot to explain something. Sorry, it's making your thing last longer. Forgot to explain why, what the cords are for. Well, good morning, New City. Glad to be with you here again as we go through and continue our series in Colossians. As I begin, I want to share a story of when I graduated from college. If you can think back to the time when you graduated, whether from high school or if you graduated from college, all of us know that you have the graduation outfit. You have the cap and gown and the little tassel uh, on on your cap. And uh, when I graduated college, my roommate and I were philosophy and religion majors. And we noticed that a lot of people were getting, you know, different sashes or cords or medals to hang around their neck for graduation. Now, some of it was merited, you know, certain people with GPAs or if you did extra special things. But then we noticed a lot of our friends were getting special cords and things to wear, not because they did anything special, but simply because if you graduated with this particular major, you got an extra thing to wear. And we're sitting there and we're like, well, this isn't fair because they didn't do anything different than we did. We're just religion majors and religion majors don't get anything special. And so for graduation, we didn't want to be left out of the fun of having something cool to wear on top of our graduation gown. And so we decided, because we spent the year doing this intensive Greek study, the dean of the religion department has his PhD in Greek from Duke, so you know it's legit. And so basically he had a few of us that year spend about an hour or two a week with him one-on-one, helping him with this Greek project that he was working on. And then he would also teach us uh, basically the fundamentals of Greek. And of course, the New Testament is written in Greek. So it's a valuable thing to learn. And so we were like, man, we're going to buy our own cords because we went through this intensive study of Greek and that's special. So we bought these cords. We went to a craft store. We're kind of like, at graduation, is there going to be like anyone who's in charge of the graduation outfits and like 
say, what is that? You can't wear it. But we decided to wear it. And so here's a picture uh, of me and my roommate, David. We're on the left-hand side of that picture with our golden little cords that represent the fact that we studied Greek. The good news is nobody asked us about it, and we got away with it, uh, showing that we could fit in and we had something special to go with everybody else. Now, I share that story because this morning we're looking at this question as we continue our time in Colossians, and that is, where do you fit in the mission of God? Where do you fit in the mission of God? I think sometimes we might feel like my roommate and I were feeling going into graduation that we don't have anything special to show for what we're doing, that maybe we don't really have an important role to play, right? You might think of uh, people who have more money or influence or power or biblical knowledge or maybe or, or a boss or a manager at your job, and you could say, well, those people have influence, those people have resources, people follow them, so clearly they have a role to play if they're a follower of Christ, but me... What can I offer? What do I actually have to do in God's mission? And so this morning, we're going to look at exactly that and show how all of us have something that we can contribute. And so this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. We'll be uh, through chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. To give you some context really quick, because last week we were in Easter, uh, Colossians was written uh, by the Apostle Paul about 30 years in early 62 AD, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He is in jail. And he's writing to the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, he didn't plant the church in, in Colossae, and he didn't actually had never even visited them. But Epaphras, who planted the church, is visiting Paul because Paul's in jail right now. He's kind of updating them on how the church is going. And so he's writing a letter to the Colossians to encourage them to continue to grow in their faith uh, and to remember that the gospel is the most important thing. And so two weeks ago, we saw in chapter one, Paul write this poem about how Jesus is above everything. He is over everything. He is king. He is Lord. And he is the one and only person who can save and give us grace and mercy. And so he's continuing this thought in chapter one, verse 24. And he's talking about this idea because God is great and Jesus is supreme that he is a part of God's mission and he's inviting us to be also a part of God's mission. Here's what he says. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. That is the church. So he is rejoicing in his sufferings. Again, he's in jail, not because he was a jerk, but because he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and a lot of people did not like this or were not comfortable with it. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Paul is saying here when he talks about this idea of what he's, that, that he is uh, completing in his flesh, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so we're not going to get into all the different ideas of what he could be saying here, but, but basically what it does appear that he is saying is that he's not saying that Christ's, Christ's uh, sufferings were deficient. He's not saying that Christ didn't suffer enough, and so I and you, as followers of Jesus, have to finish what he started, because we, we do know, especially coming out of chapter one, is that Jesus is above all things. He lacks nothing. He is king, and he is Lord. He's not saying that his sufferings were lacking in any way. What he's likely saying is that the future suffering of Paul, of all believers in the world, will continue because we all will experience affliction for the gospel. In other words, that all of us will take part in Christ's suffering. Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the head over all believers, if he suffered, then of course, why would we also not suffer as well? And so we are continuing and we are completing that suffering until Christ returns. Now, what's interesting, when we talk about suffering for our faith, certainly Paul has in mind here this idea of being persecuted, right? He's in jail. Certain Christians have been uh, jailed or beaten, and some of them even killed for their faith. And so there are certain things about following Jesus publicly 
that might make life more difficult for you. But in the same way, following Jesus is something that, that can cause suffering even privately. In other words, all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, have suffered in some ways for following him. So for example, temptation, right? Temptation can be difficult. Now, temptation is not hard if you always fall into it, if you just kind of go with whatever your desires say. But temptation is difficult if you're trying to fight against it, right? If you're trying to honor God and love other people and do things that maybe in the moment you want to do, but you're refraining from. So temptation, trying to honor God with our lives, can cause us to suffer. Uh, We can all experience sickness, uh, doubt in our faith, right? Doubt is a difficult thing. So we're not quite sure what God is doing, where God is at, but we're going to trust him anyway. And so that can cause us some suffering. Or really just trying to live out our faith in the everyday world ordinary things of life, right? Following our faith, what Jesus has done for us is good, but it can be difficult. It can be hard sometimes to deny our own desires and to do whatever we want to do and instead focus on what is good for others or what is honoring to God. All of us trying to follow Jesus will experience difficulties in our life because of that. And so I say that because I want to make this point, that suffering is the expectation, not the exception. Suffering, if you're a follower of Jesus, is the expectation, not the exception. And when we realize that, it gives us courage and hope and know that we're not alone and that we're also not following Jesus wrong or that God is trying to punish us for something. Like, for example, the vast majority of people who God uses throughout Scripture suffer. Jesus himself was crucified and killed. He suffered, right? So following Jesus is a thing that causes and can cause suffering. It would be different if everything in the Bible were people who followed Jesus and were healthy and wealthy and everything went well for them. Because then when we suffer, we might think something's wrong with us. But instead, what we see is that suffering is the expectation. It's not the exception. And when we realize that, it gives us courage and it gives us hope. It kind of reminds me, and you might be in a similar situation when you were a kid, we all thought things that were incorrect, right? And then when you got older, you might have seen somebody say something that they thought that they were a kid uh, was wrong. And you're like, oh, you thought that too. I thought that too. I thought I was the only one who thought that. It was kind of funny to know that other people thought interesting things that you did. So let me give you a personal example. And I've shared this example recently with a couple of friends. And some people have looked at me like I was crazy. And some people have been like, I thought the same thing. And so if you're watching this and you're with some friends or, or family or roommate or whomever, and you think I'm crazy, just look across the room. Maybe they can say, no, I know what he's talking about. So for example, a few months ago, I saw this meme on the internet, and here's a picture of it. And it says, my irrational childhood fear. And it's a picture of a great white shark in the deep end of a pool, right? And I saw this meme and I thought, this was me, right? When I was a kid, for, just to give you some context, we would go to Florida every year to visit family. And some of our family and friends had pools in their backyard. And so we would wake up early and go swimming. And if I was the first one up, all, oftentimes when I was a little kid, I'd get in the pool and you know, the deep end's kind of dark. And so I would always think there's a shark in there. Now you could say, Dylan, why don't you go like look in the deep end of the pool? Clearly there's not a shark in there and get back in the pool. Well, I did that. But then when you get back in the pool, the deep end's kind of dark. So maybe a shark appeared again, right? And so I always had this fear, this irrational fear of there's a shark in the pool. And so I was always a little apprehensive until other people woke up and my brothers or cousins or whomever joined me in the pool, right? I was afraid of something that wasn't real. Now, what was interesting is when I saw this meme and I saw all these people commenting saying, I thought the same thing. I was like, I'm not alone, right? I'm not 
crazy, right? Other people have thought the same thing as me. And so it is with suffering when we realize that as followers of Christ, suffering is the expectation. It is not the exception. It gives us courage and hope when we experience it. And so again, here's what Paul says. So he rejoices in his sufferings because he knows this is a normal thing. And I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church, verse 25. He says, then he says, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He said, I've been commissioned by God in this instance to help make the God's word fully known and to help grow you into spiritual Maturity, it's this idea that we would have thought of, if you could think of a steward of a house, particularly back in these times, again, there's no technology, there's no phones, there's no internet. And so people that were wealthy and had owned multiple properties and would have to travel for various things, when they left, they would have to trust somebody to run their house and their servants and making sure everything was okay, that they weren't going to steal from them, they weren't going to do a poor job of it. And so you would have a steward who was entrusted by the owner to take responsibility of the needs of the guests and to make sure everything still ran smoothly. So what Paul is saying is that this is my responsibility. And he's also extending the invitation to you and to me. As followers of Christ, God has placed us in certain places for us to steward and love and encourage other people in him. And so when we talk about this idea of what, what, where do I fit in the mission of God, one of the best things you can do to kind of answer this question is to think of it in this way, to answer this question, right? Where has God placed you? One of the best ways to start trying to figure out what is my role in God's mission is to first think, okay, where has God placed me? Because here's what often happens. When we talk about the mission of God, I think sometimes we might automatically assume big picture, right? We got to change the world. We got to save all these people. We've got to do all these amazing things. When the reality is nobody can change the world. There's not a single person that can do that. And God has not asked us to do that. And so when we talk about uh, where has God placed you, it takes the pressure off of comparing ourselves to others or thinking, well, I'm not in this place. I don't have this amount of money. I don't have this amount of influence. I don't have this amount of biblical knowledge. And so we might think of people who God clearly could use more than us. And what we need to understand is while God may have a plan for them, he also has a plan for you because those people don't know the people you know. They're not, they not around the people that you are around and they cannot impact the people that you can impact. Again, where has God placed you is the best way to start figuring out where is, where, what is my role in God's mission. Not to compare yourself to others, not to think, well, in 10 years when I'm in a better space and I'm more spiritually mature and I have more things figured out, then I'll be able to, for God to use me. But right now, where has God placed you? Because what God wants to do is help people see and experience him. And there are only people that you can impact that nobody else can based on where God has placed you. And so this is what Paul is saying. So he continues, right? He's trying to make the word of God fully known. And here's what the word of God is, verse 26. He said, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In other words, those who are followers of Jesus. It says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, basically people who are far from God, people who do not follow him, the glorious wealth of this mystery, and here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? The mystery is God's saving work through 
Jesus. Now, the, the, the one disconnect that we might see on the surface of reading this passage is what Paul means by mystery, right? When you and I think of the word mystery in our modern context today, a mystery is typically something that's uh, paradoxical or puzzling that only a few people can really figure out, but it's really like kind of this ethereal thing that like most people will never understand. It's mysterious, it's unknown. But in Jewish thought and in Paul's context, a mystery wasn't meant for something to be unknowable. It wasn't meant for something that only a few people could attain. A mystery was something that was revealed to the wise as something comprehensible. So for example, uh, Paul could, for example, say the mystery of good financial stewardship and how to, uh, 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 how to handle your finances well. Now, all of us know, at least intellectually, how to do that, right? You create a budget, you track everything you spend, you, say, you spend less than you make, and you save money, right? If you do those four things, no matter how much money you make, you will set yourself up in a much better financial position than if you don't. However, it is only the wise that actually do that. The wise people, at least financially, will actually do what they know they're supposed to do, and therefore they've comprehended the mystery of handling their finances well. It's not something incomprehensible. It's just something that you actually have to walk in. And so with the gospel, what he's talking about, the mystery of God's saving work, uh, something that has been revealed to the saints and that he wants to reveal to all of the world, is not something that's supposed to be kept for just a certain group of people. It's not something uh, that only a certain group of people can attain and experience. What he's saying is the mystery of God's love has been revealed in Christ, that Jesus is King, that he is Lord, and that he has done for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who gives us grace. He is the one that is over everything and that in him, we can receive the grace and mercy of God. And so he's saying, go and reveal this mystery. It is something comprehensible and understandable. So let's share it with other people, right? And so when you experience this mystery of God's salvation, hopefully it encourages us for, to, for us to have the desire for other people to experience it. You can think of it this way. Now I wanna give you an example of a time that I figured out something that is exciting for me. This might be gross for you, but it'll help make this point. Um, I have always had a lot of canker sores. And if you're like, what's a canker sore? You are so lucky that you've never experienced one. But, but some of you have. And canker sores are basically sores in your mouth. They last about 10 days. They come basically sometimes out of nowhere. And they last about 10 days. Now, the first two days aren't that bad. And then the last two days aren't that bad because it's getting better. But there's a six-day window well, they're miserable. If your, if your tongue touches it, if your teeth touches it, and when you eat, it is really painful. If anything touches the sore in your mouth, it's awful, right? So canker sores are awful. And, and for, for most people, it's a genetic thing. So some people are just more predisposed to getting them than others. And so I've always had canker sores. And at one point in college, there was a time where there was about a three-month stretch where not only was I always getting them back to back to back, but I was getting two, sometimes three at a time. Like, no joke. And it was awful. And I'm like, I have got to do something about this. Is there anything that can help me stop getting as many canker sores? So I start Googling, and I find out that most toothpastes have this ingredient called sodium lauryl sulfate. Sodium lauryl sulfate. Now, again, I should probably just give you the disclaimer that I'm clearly not a medical professional, but I want to explain something to you that I learned. And it basically says that sodium lauryl sulfate can essentially uh, reduce some of the oil, oil, uh, oil and natural tissues that are in your mouth. It can reduce the counts of those things and make you more susceptible to canker sores. So particularly, if you already get them a lot, if you, uh, if you, if you, if you have this sodium lauryl sulfate in your toothpaste, it can make you more susceptible to them. So I said, 
hmm, I wonder if I have this ingredient in my toothpaste. It turns out most major toothpastes have it. And so what I did is I bought a toothpaste that didn't have this ingredient. So Sensodyne, Tom's, I think a lot of the natural toothpaste, they don't have this ingredient. And so I go to the dentist for a regular checkup and I asked them, I said, I found out that like buying, having toothpaste that doesn't have this ingredient can, you know, help reduce them. And they said, well, no, that's not our thing. You don't need to worry about it. Well, I was having so many canker sores, I'm like, I'm going to try it. So I tried it and what happened? it significantly reduced the amount of canker sores that I got, like within a month. And so ever since then, I always buy toothpaste that does not have sodium lauryl sulfate. Now, why do I share that story? There are times where randomly somebody will say they have a canker sore or whatever, and what do I do? I'm like, do you get them a lot? Sometimes they say no. Sometimes they say yes. I said, well, if you get them a lot, let me explain to you about sodium lauryl sulfate. Buy toothpaste that doesn't have it. And I have had people come back and said that it works. Now, why do I explain that? Why do I share that story? That might be kind of gross, right? I had found something that was helpful to a particular ailment that I had. And so when I see and hear other people are suffering from the same thing, I'm like, let me tell you about this mystery that I have figured out. Now, I share that story because what does this have to do with us uh, living out, the, sharing the mystery of the gospel in our everyday life, I would say it this way. One of the best things that you can do to be on mission in your life is to look for natural places to share how God has impacted your life. What you can do is look for natural places how God, uh, for, to talk about ways that God has impacted your life. And here's the deal. That happens all the time. See, canker sores are a pretty random subject that don't often come up, but everybody often is sharing about how things are going in their life. And so instead of trying to uh, maybe talk about faith in an awkward way or try to force it in a conversation, you can instead look for natural places to input it. Right, so let me give you an example. I had a mentor, a really good mentor friend of mine who came to faith when he was in college. And he said one of the biggest determining factors in him trying out this Jesus thing and becoming a follower of Christ is that one of his fraternity brothers, who is Christian, was also heavily involved in Crew, which is a campus ministry on campuses all over the country. And so when they would hang out and they would talk about their days and what they were doing, he said, my friend, who was a Christian, would talk to me like a normal human being. So he would say things like, yeah, I had this Bible study and here's what we talked about, or I'm praying for this person, or you know, I'm struggling with this, or we're getting ready to do this ministry, ministry event. And he said he would talk to me as if I was a normal person. Now, I didn't always understand what he was saying or what they were doing, but it was interesting to me because he was just explaining the ordinary things that he was doing in his life, which led to further conversations. And I think sometimes we're kind of like, well, I'm not sure how to talk about Jesus right now. And so if I start talking about Jesus just randomly, it would be awkward. And maybe, or what you could do is say things like, hey, you're talking to a coworker, how was your weekend? Like actually say, hey, I went to church and here's something I learned and it was great. Or last night I had my community group and it's like a Bible study and we talked about this thing and it was great. Or here, I've got a friend that's struggling with this. And so I'm, I'm really praying for them right now. Just natural ways to do it. Like for me, this might be a little bit easier for me than for you. Here's how this plays out for me. As a pastor, of course, I have a lot of friends who are are not followers of Jesus and they know that I'm a pastor. And so when things are happening in my life and we talk about it, I just talk to them about how the church is doing. So for example, a little over a month ago when this pandemic was kind of shutting everything down and I was checking in with a few of my friends uh, who are not followers of Jesus just to see how they were doing and they were asking me and I just started to tell them about things at the church, things that we're praying for, things that I'm anxious about, things that I'm not quite sure are gonna work out and some different things that we are trying, right? I had my, because of the impact of my friend telling me just talk to people 
as if they are normal human beings about ways that God is impacting your life, just share with them. And so again, as a pastor, maybe I have sometimes an easier route because this is my job. But my encouragement is when God is impacting in your life and God is teaching you something and your friends are asking you how things are going, it is a natural place to just talk about what is going on in your life. It doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be forced. Just like when someone talks to me about canker sores, as you can tell, I get really excited and we talk about it. When people ask how things are going or when you're just following up about how your weekend was, there are many natural and easy places that are not weird, that are not forced to simply say, here's what I'm learning, here's what God's doing, or here is what I'm praying about. And so that is what Paul is encouraging us to do, for us to uh, explain and to share this mystery of who Christ is and what he's done in our life. And so with that, we'll continue. Here's what he says next in verse 28. Continuing on this theme of proclaiming who Jesus is, he says, we proclaim him, which is Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. In other words, the goal of all of this is to grow into spiritual maturity. This is the biblical word for sanctification. Sanctification just means essentially becoming more like Christ, uh, growing in your relationship with him and loving others and following God and serving people the way Christ has served us. And at at New City Church, here's how we do this. I think sometimes it might be a little confusing of like, Growing to spiritual maturity, you, we can sometimes think, well, maybe that just means that I need to like pray for two hours a day, or I need to fast for a week, or I need to do like these super big spiritual disciplines. Now, those can be helpful, but there are easy practical steps you and I can take to grow in spiritual maturity. And so here's what this looks like at New City. Uh, our belief is that we can do small, tangible things, and then over the course of our lives, and maybe you've been here over the course of a few years, and my hope is that you can look back and say, I've actually grown. And so here's what this looks like at New City. Here's how we try to set it up so that if you're involved in the life of our church, you will be growing spiritually. It's not a perfect formula, but it's something that we've put together. And it's based on our five values. Now, you may be familiar with them, or if you're new with us, you may have no idea what they are. So here's what it looks like for us at New City Church to grow in spiritual maturity. We have five values. The first is that Jesus changes everything. So this starts with the foundational belief that God, that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, what we could never do for ourselves, that he is the only author, perfecter of our faith, that he is the one towards that we can achieve and experience salvation and the grace of God, right? So we believe that Jesus changes everything. And so because of that, we want to do things to grow in our relationship with him. And so our four other values are behaviors that will help us towards that end. So for example, you can't do life alone. This is our value of community. So we encourage to everyone at our church to be a part of a community group if you're able, right? They meet once a week, some meet twice a week. Typically they share a meal, but in this season they all meet virtually online. If you're interested in joining a community group, go to newcityrdu.com groups. It's an easy way, especially now you don't have to leave your house. We believe if you are an intentional community, you will grow in your relationship with God. We also believe that loved people love people. It is our value of service, that we encourage everyone at New City to be involved in serving in some capacity because at the end of the day, this is not my church. This is not the the staff's church. This is not the church for the people who just give the most amount of money. This is your church. And as your church, we want to serve the body the way Christ has served us. And so we encourage everyone to be on a serve team. Our, Our next value is generosity, right? We believe that grateful people 
Give at New City Church. Financial generosity is important to us, not because we care about your money or that we care about money overall, but what we do care about is your heart. And Jesus says where our money is, that guides our heart. And so we want to be financially generous and give of our resources just in the same way as Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we don't say you have to give a certain percentage, but we do encourage everybody at New City Church to give generously as they see fit and as they are able to the mission of what we were doing. And then lastly, it's that moved people multiply. It's our, our, it's our mission of living, or it's our, our, our value of living on mission, of doing what Paul is saying here, right? Of inviting people to church, of having faith conversations, of looking for natural places to talk about our faith. Our belief is that if you're part of a group, if you're serving, if you're giving, and you're just actively trying to live out your faith and word and deed, you will grow into this spiritual Maturity. It's not a perfect formulation. It's not saying if you do these things, they will definitely happen for you. But it's our process here of New City Church of growing in that maturity, that we want to grow closer to him. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, here's how he ends the section that we're going to read this morning. He says, For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. So the Colossians he has not met. Laodicea is a, a town that's not too far from Colossae that he also wants to visit, but he hasn't been able to go to yet. He says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. And what is God's mystery? Christ, the, the saving work of what Christ has done for us. His goal and desire it's for as many people as possible to experience that. He says, verse 3, In him, in Jesus, are, the hit, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, everything is to be found in Christ. It is not some hidden knowledge that only the spiritual mature, spiritually mature or those that give a lot of money or those that pray a lot or fast a lot or do all these you know, certain things that they get to experience that know the gospel can be experienced by anyone, Right? That, that a cult is something that you have to join and you have to like go through the motions. And if you're good enough, then one day they'll kind of tell you like, here's what, here's what you're supposed to do or here's what we believe, right? That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is that God has revealed himself through Jesus and that anybody can see and experience him, right? The gospel is that Jesus is over everything that he is above everything, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, that everything was created by him and for him and through him. And so the gospel is the good news that God in his grace and mercy towards us sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and that Jesus, not you, through your efforts or through my efforts of trying really hard, can overcome sin and death and darkness, but Jesus defeats those things, that Jesus is victorious and that he will one day return to judge all the living and the dead and that anyone who is trusted and followed in him, not because of our efforts, but only and all because of him, can be invited into his kingdom. The gospel is, the, is an invitation. It's not do these things so God will love you. It's that God has loved you and lavishly poured out his grace and mercy on you through Christ. And he's inviting you into a relationship with him. Right? The gospel is not about you, it's about him. And so what do we wanna do? We want as many people as possible to see and experience the gospel. Our mission here at New City Church is to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. Why? Because he is the only one who can give us the grace and mercy that we are so desperately after and that we cannot attain on our own. And so this idea of where do I fit in the, in the mission of God, here's what we would say, kind of the main point as we wind down this morning, and that's this. And that's that everyone has a part to play in the mission of God. Everyone, not just the people with money, 
not just the people with influence, not just the people with spiritual wisdom or maturity or people that have been following Jesus for 50 years or people who have all of this biblical knowledge, but everyone. Where has God placed you and how can you naturally look for ways to love and encourage other people based on what Christ has done in your life? Don't just look at Paul or maybe some of the heroes of the faith and say, well, I can never do that. So clearly God can't use me instead. Understand that you, not just your friends or your families or your coworkers or the people that have influence, but you have a part of the play in the mission of God. Everybody does. And it's not about comparing ourselves. It's not about wishing we were in another season of life. But right now, where does God have us? Who has he placed us around? And how can we love and encourage other people in natural places to see and experience him? And I think one of the most practical things that we can do, especially in this coronavirus pandemic where we're at home and we're not around people as much, you might be saying, okay, I understand it, but like, I'm not talking to as many people. Like, what can I do? I think one of the best things that you and I can do in this pandemic is simply be people of hope. Be people of hope. And so practically on social media, for example, I'm not saying we can't share things about updates about the coronavirus, but what would it look like instead to be people who are sharing messages of hope instead of fear? Or what would it be, for example, to call your coworker or your friend that you haven't seen in a while or text them or email, whatever you're most comfortable with and say, hey, I just want to see how you're doing. Like I'm not asking for anything, a favor. I'm not asking for you to do anything. I just want to see how you're doing. Is there anything that I can pray for you for, right? Nobody at this point is going to tell you that they don't need prayer. We're all anxious. We're all kind of maybe somewhat depressed. We're all kind of not where we want to be because life is not what we want it to be. What would it look like simply for you and I in this season to be a person of hope? Look around at the people that God has placed in your life, no matter how much, how long you've been a follower of Jesus, no matter how spiritually mature you may think you can be, you are, all of us can pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Is there anything that you need? Everyone has a part to play in the mission of God. And the invitation of the gospel is to come and take a part, not come and earn your stay, not kind of earn your salvation or earn your favor, but God has radically changed us and gives us hope even when life is hard. And it's the invitation for you and I to join in what God is doing. Everyone has a part to play in the mission of God. All we have to do is look for natural places where you and I can be people of hope in this time. Would you pray with me? God, you are good and you are gracious. And my prayer is that everybody who's experiencing anxiousness or depression or hopelessness in this time would see and turn their eyes to you, that we would trust and follow in you and that you, God, you would just provide and reveal yourself in a fresh and powerful way to us in this time. And God, I, I pray that part of that would be for men and women who are followers of you, that you would give us the ability and the courage to be people of hope that you would show us where you want us to play or what you want us to do in your mission right now, not to check a box, not to get us to get on your good side or to gear in your favor, but simply because we've experienced hope and we know more than anything else, the world needs hope right now. And so would you give us opportunities to do that? And for those that are joining us and are not uh, followers of you, God, may they know that life can be found in you today, that they don't have to earn it, they don't have to go do these things, that there is grace and there is mercy available to, to them today through you. And God, would today be the day that they would turn their eyes upon you and receive the grace that you have given us, uh, all of us who would trust and follow in you. God, would you reveal to us this week practically how we can be a part of your mission and help as many people as possible experience hope in who you are and the goodness of who you are. Who you are. God, you are good, you are gracious, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen.